It is our practice in this place that as the truth is proclaimed, as the scriptures are read, that each week we pray the Shema together because Jesus would have done this every day. So let's pray the Shema together. You'll see the words on the screen. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. You can have a seat. We are in a sermon series this summer on First and Second Samuel. I've called, I've titled this sermon series The Crown because these stories in First and Second Samuel are about the the first stories of the monarchy in Israel. And today we have our first passage from 2 Samuel. Now remember, we have 2 Samuel because this story is of epic length. It's so long that it wouldn't fit on one scroll. So it's not accurate to say that 1 Samuel is about King Saul and 2 Samuel is about King David because we've been hearing about David since chapter 16 of 30 chapters of 1 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, we get a picture of David grieving. It's a lament that you will hear. He is mourning the dead. King Saul and Saul's son Jonathan, both killed in battle with the Philistines. The circumstances of the arrival of this bad news, of this news to David, are suspect. A messenger brings the news to David from the battlefield, but the messenger is an Amalekite of all things. This is not a reputable source. Uh, It shouldn't take you long to come up with a contemporary equivalent in your mind. Who is it that misrepresents the truth? Who is it that you don't trust? Okay, that, that is an Amalekite. So the great offense of the Amalekites in the Bible is spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 25. When the Israelites were leaving Egypt under God's lead, weary and worn out, the Amalekites attacked them from behind. And they picked off the vulnerable, those who were lagging behind. So this would have been the elderly, the physically disadvantaged, the exhausted, the fearful, the sick. It's a bad call, biblically speaking. I'm pretty certain that God didn't like it. So it's an Amalekite that delivers the news of Saul and Jonathan's death and also delivers the crown to David. David is not relieved to no longer be pursued by King Saul. David does not rejoice at finally having the crown in his hands. He doesn't reward this messenger. David kills the Amalekite messenger. You know, in this chapter of 2 Samuel, David doesn't do the things that I think David should do. He grieves. He writes. He cries a lament. It's recorded here in 2 Samuel, and also our scripture passage will tell you the lament is recorded in the book of Jashar. 
which we have no record on. Amazon, we're no record of. Amazon will tell you, you can buy a copy of the book of Jashar. You cannot buy a copy of this book. It is not in existence. The book of Jashar literally means the book of the upright or the book of the just. And so it probably was at one time an anthology of heroic deeds. And I think you, when you hear this text, you will hear why this story would belong, this poem would belong in the book of heroes. Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar and you uh, saw his very uh, blurry image in the video this morning. Um, he wrote a commentary on First and Second Samuel. And in this commentary, he said, David in grief is in his fullest, most faithful, most powerful form. David in grief is in his fullest, most faithful, most powerful form. And I think that's true. You know, we get a lot of stories of David in the Bible, of his extreme heroism, of his extremely poor judgment. But could it be that in grief, we get the clearest, the truest, the most unguarded, the most faithful version of David. I think this is true. I think it's why I've had more than one mentor in ministry say to me that they would rather do funerals than weddings. You know, weddings can be great fun celebrations, but funerals, truly sacred moments are found there. The kind that you can't much touch or retell the kind we get when our defenses are down. Lament sets the table for this kind of holy encounter. So these verses, this lament contains a refrain that you will hear three times. It is a common phrase in English. And so I'm wondering if you can pick it out. Will you hear these verses from 2 Samuel chapter one? I'm gonna begin with verse one. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from defeating the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And then in verse 17, David intoned this lamentation over Saul and his son, Jonathan. He ordered that the song of the bow be taught to the people of Judah. It is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, lies slain upon your high places how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. Your mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor bounteous fields. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul anointed with oil no more. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, nor the sword of Saul return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you with crimson and luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen, 
in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain upon your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Amen. Did you pick up on the refrain? How the mighty have fallen. We still use the phrase today. Although this week, I think I learned that I am apt to misuse the phrase. I don't claim to care much of royalty or even of warriors. Some versions of this refrain in English say how the warriors have fallen. But there are people I admire those whose thoughts or lives I deem as worthy of following. And when I see a celebrity or one of the obscure people I admire stumble or meet their demise, I probably say or think or I might even read how the mighty have fallen. What I really mean when I say this, when I shake my head in judgment, is what a train wreck. What a train wreck is not the intention of how the mighty have fallen, biblically speaking. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 1 is the only place that this phrase is found in the entire Bible, but it's found three times in this one lament. How the mighty have fallen is an emotional cry from David who loves Jonathan and repeatedly protects and spares the life of King Saul. And David says in this lament, don't speak of their deaths in places where there could be rejoicing in the Philistine towns or territories. This is not news for rubbernecks. You know, I did a little of that this week. On Thursday morning, I was just off of I-10 on Highway 41, driving toward Rock Springs with no other cars, except five or six law enforcement vehicles pulled off to the side of the road where a black truck had crashed into a tree. Then a, about a quarter of a mile later or less, a couple of sheriff's vehicles were down by Johnson Creek and just a moment later, another officer collecting a strip of nails that must have been across the road. I'm still trying to put all the pieces together in my head. And I know a sheriff's deputy that owns some land out there. I'm calling him. I want to know what happened. It's fascinating, entertaining, right? David says, the deaths of Saul and Jonathan are not that kind of news. If this news doesn't take your breath away, if the news of these deaths don't grieve you, it's simply not for you. You see, a lament is not detached. A lament feels very deeply. The Bible contains laments of distress and laments for the dead, two different kinds of laments. We read a lament of distress 
earlier in worship. Psalm 130 is a lament of distress. It is a cry to God for help. When you need help, Psalm 130 is a great psalm to pray. Out of the depths I call to you. Oh Lord, hear my voice. That is a lament of distress. But there are also laments for the dead in the Bible. And laments for the dead honor those who are gone. Looks upon their accomplishments with great admiration, even extreme exaggeration. A lament for the dead speaks no ill of the dead. This kind of lament does not directly mention God. But Old Testament scholar Bruce Birch says this kind of lament is deeply human. It is a deeply human moment. And I would tell you that a deeply human moment can in fact be sacred. We don't have to mention God's name to know that God is present. Sometimes the divine shows up in conversation with another person or at the table over a meal or in a hospital room. Deeply human moments where we touch, where we admit our vulnerability that truly is our experience. Those places, those moments are hallowed. This is David's lament. He honors Saul and Jonathan, the best versions of themselves, better than we actually remember hearing. He writes, they were loved and admired. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And he confesses his deep emotions for them. You were dear to me, he writes. Jonathan, my brother, your love for me was wonderful. Dr. Brueggemann says in grief that grief has a way of focusing the picture of life for us. What is it we really need to remember about a person or a relationship? Grief can help us highlight it. We often in grief exaggerate the best qualities, but then we remember those qualities and we carry those qualities with us. How the mighty have fallen. In his writing on this passage, preacher James Howell imagines a book club in heaven of biblical writers. Can you imagine King David, Matthew, the Apostle Paul, the prophet Isaiah, Moses, John, maybe Oprah seems appropriate, right? All sitting in a share circle praising David for this beautiful poetry. But I also have to imagine that they would thank David. They would thank him for teaching them a thing or two about lament. We would thank David that lament teaches us to order our priorities. It reminds us how important we are to one another. Things and possessions They aren't grieved for very long, but people matter. People matter to us and people we miss. You know, this lament reminds us that we belong together. A lament is a communal act. It's best done in the presence of other people. Laments in the Bible, I believe, remind us that we don't check pain at the door to a church. We bring it in with us. And we don't hide pain in our pockets when we're in the presence of other people. 
best shared. In her book, Option B, Cheryl Sandberg tells the story of the death of her husband and the story of her own grief. He died suddenly when they were on a family vacation. Her children were in second and fourth grades. She wrote, when we arrived at the cemetery, my children got out of the car and they fell to the ground. And so I lay down in the grass holding them as they wailed. And then their cousins came and they laid down with us and we were all piled together in a sobbing heap. Sandberg told her children, this is the second worst moment of our lives. We live through the first, we will live through this. It will only get better from here. Then she began to sing a song that she knew from childhood, a prayer for peace. She sang the words in Hebrew. She later learned it is the last line of the Jewish prayer for mourning, the Jewish prayer for grief. And she said, she testified that the words just poured out of her. The truth of lament is that we are not alone in our pain and in our grief. Brene Brown wrote, our broken heart is connected to every heart that has known pain since the beginning of time. And I would tell you that every heart, every single heart has known pain. We are all connected. Most importantly, a lament like David's tells us the truth of who we are. We are almighty and we all fall. This is a common path. It is the common path. Falling is not a matter of if. Falling is a matter of when. Second Samuel begins with a phrase. It begins with a phrase that just might make you want to put the book down and walk away. Five words. After the death of Saul. After the death of Saul, what? The first king of Israel dead? The new hope of the people? Ugh, I give up. Except, except there are two other previous Hebrew Bible books that begin this way. Joshua and Judges. Judges begins with these five words, after the death of Joshua. What? What? The leader who delivered us to the promised land dead? This can't be good. And the book of Joshua begins with after the death of Moses. Are you serious? The great liberator dead? We're done. But do you see the pattern? Do you see the pattern? The pattern tells us don't give up. The truth of the matter is there are deaths, important things, some of the most important things, and people come to an end, and there is a future. With our God, there is always, always a future. People of faith, people of the book, admit that some of our best stories begin with an ending. Rabbi Yitzhak Hunter said, 
When we focus on the high attainments of great people and we fail to mention their struggles, we get the impression that individuals sprang from the hand of God in a state of perfection. It's not true. It's not true for any of us. Proverbs 24 verse 16 says, a righteous person falls seven times. A righteous person falls seven times but rises again. How the mighty have fallen and how the faithful will rise again. Amen and amen. Will you pray with me? Creator God, you do not fear endings. Would you teach us to dwell with you in grief long enough to be changed by love? Allow us, Lord, to hold safe spaces for each other where tears transform. And would you strengthen us to hold on for each new day, for every new season? We ask these things in the name of the one who walked the path of death and resurrection, our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen.